I wanted to start this morning uh, with what I actually started my day yesterday with, which was just reading the first couple verses to this psalm. And it was very profound, very simple observation I made, but very profound. And this doesn't really tie into the message at all. I just wanted to begin this day um, reading this to you guys and reflecting on this before we pray. It says this in Psalm 65, verses 1 and 2. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hears prayer. And that's where I stopped yesterday morning and just went. Now that's something we all know. God hears prayer. But for some reason it struck me because I was about to pray and, and I was just like, why do I just mumble off these words if I'm seriously talking to the God, the one who hears prayer. And so I just wanted to begin by reminding us that we don't, Chris doesn't pray at the end of worship to make it like a smooth transition. James doesn't pray for me, you know, because it's just kind of what we do. We pray as a body collectively because we believe that we're talking to the one who hears prayer. And so I wanted to approach Kim with that attitude um, this morning as I pray to begin Father, I'm, I'm asking for you to meet with us again. I thank you so much for the first service, for guiding me through it, guiding us through it. And now there's a new room full of people, Lord, that need to, to hear from you, to be ministered to by or ministered by you, Lord. They need, Father, the comfort of your word, the gospel. And you love. And Jesus, you know that I, I'm unable to do any of that. And so I, I ask, Father, right now for an anointing in your spirit, a blessing to just come down upon us from above. I want to be ministered to myself, Lord. I don't just want to talk to these people. I want you to talk to me through me. So... Lord, I just pray you give me a mouth to speak, give them ears to hear, and may we just be caught up into the third heaven, Lord, in worship of you. I love you, Jesus, and thank you so much for this time. Amen. Cool. I'm going to begin this morning um, with more of, I guess you could say, a somber or sober realization uh, that I had the past week, but where I'm going with this is ultimately towards our joy, but I, I want to begin um, with a thought I had, and that was that we gather here on Sunday mornings. We come in Sunday after Sunday, we put on our, you know, our best clothes, you know, I'm actually wearing a collared shirt this morning, which never happens. Um, we put on our best clothes, we smile, we greet each other, we got high fives and hugs, and, and we, we act like we got it all together, but the reality is... We gather every Sunday as broken people. We gather every Sunday as a broken people. And I know this because I'm one of them. Because I have to see what starts coming up in my mind and the evenings when no one else is around and no TV on, no radio, no work to do. And I'm sitting there and it's just me, my thoughts, and the Lord. And I realize, you know what? I'm broken. And so I imagine, and I think I have the Scriptures backing me up here, that every single person in this room, when we come together, though we do our hair and we look good, and we can be truly happy in the Lord, absolutely, there is a reality beneath all of it that we are broken people. Things aren't right all the time. And so I was just trying to wonder what it might be for you when there's no distraction, whatever your distraction of choice is, it's gone. And it's just you, and you're just thinking about your life, about who you are and what you're doing. I wonder what it is. Is it guilt and shame? 
That's what it often is for me. That's why I begin there. It is often for me that when I, all distractions aside, sit there and have to deal with my own heart, what starts to come up is guilt and shame. I wonder if you've ever felt like David in Psalm 51 where Nathan just comes to him and points out his sin with Bathsheba. And David in verse 3 says, My sin is always before me. That's what he says. My sin is always before me. I wonder if anybody's ever felt like that. How could I have done that all those years? In addiction or adultery or whatever it might be. How could I have done that yesterday or said that to my girlfriend or my wife or my coworker or my fellow student or my roommate? And there's this guilt and this shame. It's always before me. I wonder if that's the brokenness that marks your guys' life. Or, I wonder if it's fear or despair. I think we've probably all experienced both of these. But I wonder right now, fear, despair, is it this feeling of, I'm not sure that God is going to be there for me when I need Him. Fill in the blank. What is the situation to which you look at it and you go, I'm not sure that God's going to be there or He's going to provide what I need. I know it says, Romans 8.28, that God works all things for good for me. But you know what? Right now, I don't see it and I'm scared about where this thing might go. We're afraid or that fear might lead to despair. And we look up in God and go, are you listening or not? Are you the one who hears prayers or not. So I wonder if that marks brokenness or defines your brokenness. Is it a wound or a scar? I mean, I was telling the last service and, and there's more of you in, in, in this room than there was last time. And I just told him, I said, guys, I know in a room this size that there are people that have been so wounded and so scarred by things that they've had to go through, whether it's the father when they were younger, the mother that left, or the boyfriend that said he loves you and just booked it, or the husband who committed adultery, or God forbid, a church member or a pastor. And there are wounds and there are scars in your heart. And it just burns. It's just there. Why is it still there? I'm a grown man now. Why am I still dealing with that? There are wounds and there are scars that follow us sometimes. And we just try to distract it. Just get rid of it. Put a TV in front of me. Let me go to a sports game. Just let me around some friends so I don't have to think about my guilt. I don't have to think about my fear. I don't have to think about my wounds and my scars. So we gather here this morning as broken people, I am positive, I'm sure. And what I want, where I want to go with this is ultimately to that message above all messages that God has ordained to meet us in our pain. As long as we're just pasting on smiles and pretending like Christians are perfect, we're not going to meet with God the way He wants us to meet with Him. So this message, above all messages that He has ordained to meet us in our pain and ease and heal our brokenness, three simple words if I could boil it down. Just, God loves you. That's the message. I go, I was expecting something more. That's the secret. God loves I knew that. That's it. It's called the Gospel. 
Christ knows this. That's why in Matthew 28, when he's about to go and he sends his disciples, he says, take this word to everybody. All nations, all people, they all need to hear it. What? God loves them. That's the universal elixir or healing. That's it. Take it to them. And so, what I want for us to do today is to be alright with the fact that we're broken. I'm a pastor, for goodness sake. I feel like people look at me and expect me to be perfect. I know I'm young, so maybe they give me a little bit of slack. I'm sure Brian feels it. I feel broken every day of my life. Why am I even in leadership? What am I doing here? So selfish and proud and afraid and insecure. But what I want for us to do is be okay with that. Just this moment here that we have together, set before God all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our fear, all of our despair, all of our wounds, all of our scars, and just hold it out there in all of our vulnerability, just shaking hands. This is who I am. And hear with awe that He would say to you, I love you. I love you. I see all of that. I know what you're afraid of. I know how it burns inside of you, these wounds and these things. And I love you. So I want for us, whatever it might be, let the Lord bring it to the surface, set it before Him, and hear Him say, I love you this morning. So for the rest of this message, all I really want to do is fill out that word love. All I want to do is fill out this word love. Because I know there are misconceptions. I know we don't understand it. We go, I know what love is. I've experienced it. My husband told me that the day before he left me. I know what love is. It's when I do good enough and my mom says, well done, son. That's love. We have so many misconceptions that we bring in to this idea of God's love. And what I want to do is fill out what does it mean that God loves us. Because I'll tell you something, because of all of these earthly problems we have with love and experiences with a more or less imperfect love, we have a hard time believing it when God actually tells us what His love means. And this. It just can't be like that. It's got to be like the loves I know and you're just waiting to leave me. Ooh. You're just waiting to leave me. It's not. So I want to spend the rest of this morning with you guys trying to fill out that word love so that we can understand how does God actually love me. And my prayer is that by the end of the service, the guilt, the fear, the wounds, gone. That's my prayer. So we're going to go to Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. And this is where I'm actually picking it up, essentially, with a message that I taught at the rain. Um, I guess it was, a, it was the beginning of the summer. And then I actually even taught it for the high schoolers. I think saw, I saw some of the high schoolers in here. I, I, I taught through some of this for them. There, it was funny, there was like three of them. <laughs> and I was still trying to, you know, preach and stuff. And it's was like, Nick, if there's ever a time to kind of lower your voice, that would be the time. There's three. Settle down. But nonetheless, if you guys have already heard me share on this, um, praise God. I, I, I pray that it blesses you again. There's a conviction I have when it comes to sharing the gospel, and that is this. I've shared this at the rain many times. Though it's the same message, Essentially, God loves you. You've all heard that. This isn't like, what? Did I hear Him right? You've all heard that probably. Though it's not the same message, or I'm sorry, though it is the same message, you are not the same people. It's essentially why I will continue to speak and I think that this message will hit no matter how many times you've heard it. Because the reality is, is when you come to the Gospel, you're not the same person you were, you were a week ago. 
He got new guilt to apply this message to. New fears, new shame, new wounds, all these things. I need to hear God loves me again and again and again and again because I am a different person and tomorrow I will wake up and probably download this sermon so I can hear it again. Even though I'm speaking it, even though I know it, I need to hear it again. So, Romans 5. Verses 8 through 10. We're picking it up with Paul mid sentence. Um, but it's okay because these uh, three verses are complete essentially as they are. So, verse 8, you'll see why I'm going here to understand God's love for us. Because it begins God demonstrates his own love for us. So, it begins God has a love, it is his own, and he gives it to us. So I want to know how. I want to know what does it look like. And that's where Paul goes. God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. I'm going to go about trying to look through this text by asking a series of questions. There's three questions. First, where are we in this text? Where is Christ in this text? Where is God in this text? Okay? And from that, I think we will paint and fill out this picture of God's love for us. Okay? First question, where are we in this text? What I want to do is find ourselves here. And what we find at first is enough to put us on our faces. It is absolutely terrifying what Paul says we are. Verse 8, we are sinners. Verse 10, we are Enemies. For if while we were enemies, I want you to see that about yourself. This is where this whole thing begins. It begins with sinner, enemy, Nick Weber. That's where it begins. By sinner, I take it to mean I break His law. By nature, there's just something wrong in my heart, born in Adam into sin. I'm a sinner. And I break His law. And by enemy, what I think he means is, not only do I break his law, but I am happy to break it. An enemy insinuates active rebellion, active hatred. I am against you. That's what it says about you and me. Paul is not holding back here. He's saying, listen guys, I want you to know who you are. And now who God has made you. Because that's not all that is said about us. Praise the Lord. It is said in verse 9, we're justified. Since therefore we have now been justified. We are somehow justified. And then in verse 10, it says that we are now reconciled. Much more now that we are reconciled. So somehow, this sinner is justified. Meaning, counted righteous. Though I am in sin, though I once was just living in it, transgressing all of His law, all of a sudden, God comes over to me and says, justified, which means, count you as righteous, as perfect, as pure. And though I was once an enemy of God, Somehow I have been reconciled now to Him, which means made a friend. To where instead of butting heads, I am in His arms. And I want to ask, how? How does a sinner all of a sudden get counted righteous? How does an enemy all of a sudden be reconciled made a friend? And we'll answer that question by asking the second question, where is Christ in this text? And I know that in verse 10 it says He's saving us by His life. 
But what I want to stick with and focus on is what seems to be the emphasis of Paul's thought, which is his death. You see that in um, verse 8 there. God demonstrates, shows His own love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is where His love is evident to you. He died for you. Verse 8. Verse 9. He is spilling His blood for us. We have been justified by His blood. Whose blood? Christ's blood. There's blood in these verses. Blood of the Lamb in these verses. And then verse 10 says, He's put to death for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? By the death of His Son. So Christ, whoops, sorry, Christ in these verses is on the cross. And that's where we find our answer to the first question. How is a sinner by nature transgressing, counted righteous, justified? It's that Christ was counted sinner, crucified. How is it that an enemy has made a friend reconciled? It's that Christ was on the cross, made an enemy, crucified. That's the meaning here. That's the meaning of Christ's cross is sinner, enemy on this side of the cross, righteous friend on this side. That the reality of this whole thing is God putting my sin on His Son. God putting all of my wickedness and all of my rebellion on His Son. And allowing me to walk through that cross like open doors into His love and His righteousness. Let me read this to you. It is at the cross that the flow of God's fiery wrath was fully quenched and converted. That from it now flows to us the richest stream of God's everlasting love. This image for me transformed the way that I view God and His relationship with me and every good thing that ever comes to me. I see it all through the cross and undeserved. What you got here in, in, in that picture is God looks down at us with anger in His eyes. Righteous anger. I know that's not easy to hear, but God is angry with sin every day, the Bible says. And so there is anger, there is fire in His eyes as He looks at us, but praise be to God, between us and Him is the cross. And so what we have is God's anger against our sin, against our rebellion, like fire leaving His hands like wrath, is fully quenched, and not just quenched, but converted. So that now from the cross flows to us the richest stream of everlasting love. What once was anger now through the cross is love, righteousness, friendship. I read another verse in that same psalm yesterday and it just struck me. I want it to strike you guys. It said this, the river of God is full of water. That's what it said. The river of God is full of water. And I looked at that and then I brought that to what I was going to teach on today and I was like, that's amazing. Because you want to know what the mainspring of that river that is so abounding and so full is? It's the cross. Where all that fire was converted into the richest stream that now flows to every believer in this room. And I bid you come and drink. Come and know His love. Everlasting love. Now, I want to ask where is God? 
to find God with me um, in these verses. He's really just there in the first verse, but he's obviously through it all. It says in verse 8, God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, so the idea is God is demonstrating His love, but I imagine we would look at this and go, how is this God demonstrating His love? The text says that God demonstrates His own love by Christ dying for me. That should seem to say that Christ is demonstrating His love by dying for me. How is this God's love? And this whole thing doesn't make any sense unless you realize that the cross, not just some who happenstance that you know, Judas just in his wickedness did and God was like, oh no, but rather you see the cross as a plan purposed by God the Father throughout all of eternity. There is someone above this cross demonstrating love. And what I'm going to try to do to explain this to you guys, make sense of it for you, is just link three verses together. The first is Psalm 115.3 where it says, Our God, want to know where He is? He's in the heavens and He is doing what He pleases. That's what it says. Our God is in the heavens doing as He pleases. So there you get the overarching sovereignty of God. He does what He pleases. And then you come trembling to Isaiah 53.10. And you read this. It pleased Him to crush His Son. It says in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, the prophecy about Christ's death on the cross, that God was above it, purposing it, and more than that, it pleased Him to crush His Son. I taught on Friday night, something really moved me. I, th- I don't remember where the verse, I think it was verse 10 of Isaiah 53, and it said that God saw the anguish of Christ's soul and was satisfied. Not just anguish of the flesh here. Not just, ah, there's wounds in my hands here. Anguish of soul here. Our sin crawling over His body. God's anger against it. And it said that satisfied God. It said it pleased Him to crush Him or Put him to grief? Why? Because in Romans 5, verse 8, he wanted to demonstrate to you and me his own love for us. Son, I want them to see my love. I don't want them to question anymore my love. We've got to pay sin. We've got to do it. Let's do it in a way that all the world can see. And it pleased me to crush you. I've got to feel that, for goodness sake. This is why we are Christian. Our God put His Son on the cross in our place. Sinners made righteous. Enemies made friend. The door of the cross open wide. Come ye who will. I want to make another observation here about the cross. This is something that really moved me. I'll just read it for you here. The manifestation of God's love climaxes at the cross. And I I chose my words very carefully there because I know how it can be misconstrued. I'm not saying that God's love gets bigger and bigger and, and reached its climax at the cross. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that it's like God's love was decent in the beginning and it just grows and rose and now it's kind of tapering off from the cross. No, God's love has always been the same. From eternity past to eternity future. But the manifestation of His love, what we can actually see of His love, reached its climax at the cross of Christ. I imagine myself um, 
when I was preparing this, being like an Old Testament dude, you know, like my robe, reading through the old scrolls and, and imagining what this love would look like, thinking, man, I've, I've heard about this love of God. I'm reading about Abraham. I've seen it. I put my hands on a little lamb and watched him take my sin away and forgive me for that. I, I, I've heard about David and the way that he promised this love to him. I imagine we would understand it. We would read it. But just think about the day that man stood at the foot of the cross and watched the very Son of God die. I imagine he said, I've read about it. I've heard about it. I thought I knew it. But I had no idea it was this big. It's the climax. The manifestation of God's love. Which is why this thought just came to me last service. I, I think it's right. I hope it's right. I, I think it's biblical, so I'm just going to say it again. Which is why in heaven, throughout all of eternity, we will be singing about the cross. When we talk about God's love, it's not going to change. There's a song that they're singing, Worthy, worthy are you. Lamb that was slain. The cross is in view here, even in heaven. But the difference is not that God's love has changed. It's just we get the cross more. The place where His love and its revelation reached its climax, we finally get it. Or we can see a little bit more of it. We just sing for all of eternity. So the cross is the climax of the manifestation of God's love. Which is why everyone before the cross looks to the cross. And everyone now after the cross here in this room looks back to the cross. That's it. That's it. There was um, three texts that I wanted to just read you guys real quick, uh, two of them from John and then one back in Romans 5, um, just to try to link with you guys that when God talks about His love, He naturally goes to the cross as the climactic manifestation of it, okay? This is John 3.16. You all know this. I pray. For God so loved the world, and I want to stop there and ask how. How do I know that God so loved the world, finish the sentence, that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God so loves the world. How do I know? He gave His Son. That's where John goes. 1 John 4.9, same thing. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How was it made manifest? I want to know. I want to see His love. Where does John lead us? That God sent His Son into the world so that we might live through Him. He sent His Son. You want to know God loves you? Look! of what God did with the Son on the cross. And then notice that again, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates His own love for us. How? How is it demonstrated? I want to see it. I need to know. I struggle with doubting about your love. Where was it made manifest in all of its clarity? In that while we were still sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. Now, there's something interesting that Paul does there that John didn't do, and I want to focus on that for a moment. Because John says, God so loved the world, He sent His Son. In this, the love of God was made manifest, He sent His Son. But Paul says, God demonstrates His own love for us. He doesn't jump straight to the cross. He says something in between there. He says, in that while we were yet sinners, and then to the cross, Christ died for us. You've got to see that and you've got to go, why? Why does Paul want me to know that Christ died for me while I was a sinner? Why does he got to emphasize Christ died for me when I was a sinner? And what I think he's trying to do is show us the magnitude of God's love for us. He's trying to show us how big this love is. He's going, I don't want you guys to doubt anymore. But God loves you 
So remember, when Christ died for you, you were still a sinner and an enemy. And it says, I think up in verse 6, weak, ungodly. The magnitude of God's love for us can be measured in light of His relation to we whom He has saved and Christ whom He has sacrificed. That's where I think Paul's going, okay? He's trying to get us to see how high, how infinite, how immeasurable this love really is. And so what I'm going to try to do is put some language to this so that you can see it, okay? I believe that what Paul is trying to get us to do is to realize that God's love can be measured in light of our relationship to God, the time we were saved, and Christ's relationship to God, the time He was sacrificed. And so what you have here, think with me. I just kind of mentioned who we were. It says we're sinners at this time. It says we're enemies at this time. It says we're ungodly. It says we're weak at this time. If I could say it... I w- For for sake of the illustration, to try to draw out something we can measure, I would say we are the lowest creatures in relation to God. The birds, they don't disobey. That's why Jesus would point to them and say, be like the birds in Matthew 6. Stop being anxious. They don't gather. They don't worry. They just do what they're commanded. And yet, human beings were sinners. By nature, we're rebels, we're enemies of God by our very nature. And so, for sake of the illustration, I would say we are at this point His lowest creatures. And then you look at God's relationship to Christ whom He has sacrificed. And you start to see where Paul is going here. Because Christ was God's Son, and more than that, His only Son. And more than that, you guys remember what God pronounced over Jesus at His baptism? I think in Matthew 4, when He goes down, the dove descends, and out come from the heavens comes the voice, Behold, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the only One, I would ask, in whom I am well pleased. And so for the sake of the illustration, again, we have something to measure. I would say that Christ is God's highest treasure. I think that's why God even ordained that He would only have one son. Think about this. God could have another son. It's not really hard for Him to do that, I don't imagine. But He ordains that He would have only one so that we would get it. When He sacrifices His son, He sacrifices everything. Jewish culture understood it. The son got the inheritance. I want to only have one son, God says, so that when I sacrifice him, my highest treasure, for them, the lowest creature, they will get it. I give them everything. And to measure this love is an impossible task. Because Christ is infinitely high, we infinitely low, and yet God in love bridges the gap by sacrificing His Son and lifting us up to be with Him justified, reconciled, friends, children, even sons. There was something I listened to. I need to get a drink of water. Man, I don't like wearing long sleeves, but I figure that's like, you know, socially appropriate or something. Collars and all that. It's hot. Okay. I listened to a sermon. Um, we actually went to the Resolve Conference a while ago with the rain. Um, that was about a month, two months ago maybe. Um, and there was a guy there by the name of C.J. Mahaney preached a message on the doctrine of adoption. There was something he said in there that struck me so strong. And I I listened to it actually the other day, just yesterday, to try to be moved afresh by the message and and remind myself 
of what he had said there. And I just found myself literally in my closet, weeping before God because it is so hard for some reason for me to believe that his love is that infinite and that immeasurable and that good. I don't get it. It's really tough sometimes for me. But what C.J. Mahaney said, and I would encourage you to listen to it, I think you can get it on resolve.org. It's his very first message. You can download it. What he said there, speaking for God, I just sat there and listened to, and I want you guys to sit and listen to now, is this. Quit being suspicious of my love. Quit laying this burden on me by doubting my love for you. What more can I do to show you I love you? I cannot improve upon my demonstration. That is the climax. I cannot make it any clearer for you. Why do you still doubt, O ye of little faith? I love you. I love you. Trust in my love. Embrace my love. Receive my love. And find peace for your soul. Essentially, he was just quoting Romans 8.32, which says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's Paul's logic. Guys, if you question his love, go back to the cross and say, If he did not withhold from me his son on that day, how is He going to not be there for me when I need Him now? So I pray, I pray that you guys would receive it. There's more um, to this text that I want to bring up. Um, and that is that God does not just demonstrate His love for us on the cross, but He also secures it at the cross. That's what it says. That's if you follow the much more logic of Paul in this verse, um, or in this text, you'll see what I'm talking about. That God does not just merely demonstrate His love, He secures His love for us forever at the cross. Read again with me verses 8-10. through 10. God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then He draws this from it. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, and here it is, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So this is where Paul takes us after saying, listen, while you were a sinner, God demonstrated the infinite value, worth, length of His love. He was also securing you in His love forever. That's what He says. If God loved you while you were a sinner to the degree that it pleased Him to crush His Son on your behalf, if God loved you while you were an enemy to the point where it pleased Him to crush His Son on your behalf, when you were the lowest creature and Christ was the highest treasure, how much more is He going to love you now that you've been justified and reconciled? That's where Paul's going. It wasn't just demonstrated, it was secured. I don't know if you guys struggle with, am I going to make it to the end? Am I going to stand firm in faith? Is that just the last time He's going to forgive me for that sin that I have committed over and over and over again? I think it probably is. 
If you ever get afraid that God's love can end for you or is about to be taken away, all I want for you to do is hear Him say through Paul two words. Much more. Much more. That's what He would say. You think your sin is bad? You think I can't handle that or love you still? If I loved you when you didn't even care about me but were against me as my enemy, much more will I love you to the end and on into eternity, to the ages to come. Don't question my love. See the magnitude of it. Receive it. So, I want to begin to draw this to a close by bringing us to Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 7, which essentially is very similar in what it says about us and yet about what God is doing with us. But I go here for a particular reason. This passage is one that means probably, I shouldn't say the most, but one of the most to me in all the Bible. Um, and what it tells me about God's love, what it tells me about my salvation. What I want to do here, the reason why I'm going here, is because it would have been good enough if God had secured our love. It would have been good enough. But what I think it says here in Ephesians 2, is that not only has He secured our love for all the ages to come, but He purposes to make our experience of His love sweeter and sweeter for all the ages to come. It's going to get better and better. And so I want for you guys to know that. I want for you guys to feel that. I want for you guys to experience that. To be set free, healed by that. Read with me verse 1 of Ephesians 2 down through verse 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, everybody in this room, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's us. That's all really Paul has to say about us. There's nothing good there. It's very humbling. It's very terrifying. And then you get to the loving, merciful work of God in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, and this is where I draw the idea that it's just going to get sweeter for us, in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, find yourself again. It doesn't get any better than it was in Romans 5. Sinner, enemy, in Romans 5, here we are in Ephesians 2. Paul talks about us again. We're dead in the trespasses and sins. We're walking in our trespasses and sins. We're following the course of the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. We are sons of disobedience. We're living in the passion of our flesh. We're carrying out the desires of our body and mind. We are by nature children of wrath. That's what it says about you and me. And then... You look at what God is planning to do with us. In His great love, it says, He brings us to His Son through the cross, reconciles us to Himself, seats us in the heavenly places with Him, and then purposes to pour out His love forever and ever upon Him. And I think it says ages and ages to come, 
because He knows He's going to need ages and ages for us to begin to experience and grasp it, which is where I get the idea that it's just going to get sweeter for us, guys. It's just going to get sweeter. I want to bring something up here. It would be unbelievably glorious. Stick with me. It would be unbelievably glorious if all that God did in the gospel was wipe our slates clean and give us a second chance to be righteous, to, in a sense, merit His love. It would be unbelievably glorious if all that happened in the gospel was your sin was washed clean and God said, now go out there and good luck. Please don't fall into sin again. Because next time, there will be no love. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't stop there. Though that would have been gracious. Though that would have been undeserved. Instead, He moves one step further and He says, okay, not only am I going to wash you clean in My love, but I'm going to secure you in My love. I'm going to make sure I know you guys day after day are going to fall into things and struggle imperfections just cropping up out of your flesh. I know it's going to happen, but guess what? At the cross, I didn't just give you a second chance. I secured you in My love forever. And that would be amazing. That would be glorious. That would be, we, we could stop right now and worship Him and we would have plenty to come to Him with thanksgiving for. But the reality is, He doesn't stop even there. Because I think Ephesians 2 is saying, listen, God doesn't just wash you of your sin and give you a second chance. He secures you in His love that no matter if you walk into sin again, He's going to be there for you. And more than just securing you in His love, He has purposed to make your experience of His love sweeter and sweeter and sweeter for all the ages to come. I want you to go back with me again and stand in awe of what Ephesians 2, 1-7 says. I know we already went there, but I want you guys to see what Paul does here in these seven verses. What God purposes to do with people like you and me is absolutely unthinkable if you follow Paul's train of thought. Because again, you've got dead in trespasses and sins. This is us. Walking after them following the course of the world, following Satan, sons of disobedience, living in our flesh, carrying out the desires of our flesh, children of wrath, is how he starts. And then he ends with us for all of eternity with Christ and God, God pouring out His love upon us over and over, more and more, forever. He takes the lowest of creatures and He takes them to the highest of places and gives them the richest of treasures. This doesn't make any sense, which is why it's so hard to believe. This is why it's like, it doesn't even sound like this is legit. How can this be what God is? It's got to be something that He sees in me. i got to do something. Look at the text and tell me where you are. Tell me what good God sees in you that made Him want to bless you like this. You're dead. Spiritually, but you are very alive. In the flesh, it seems, you're walking after sin. Pursuing after Satan and your, your, your flesh. And yet, God looks at you, which is what I think Paul means when he says, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Back in Romans 5. God looks at you, it says, while dead in your sin and because of the great love with which He loved you makes you alive. And more than makes you alive, takes you to eternity or is going to take us to eternity where He will ensure that our experience of 
His love only gets sweeter and sweeter with all the ages to come. When I first saw that and thought about what this text actually is going, it, it is unthinkable. I don't know what your thoughts are about heaven. Sometimes we go, gosh, ages and ages to come, that sounds kind of weird and awkward and scary and long. I'm not sure I like that idea. What are we going to be doing? Are my friends going to be there? I want for you to think about this. Have you ever experienced, have you ever, I mean, think back in your life, I I hope, pray, I I hope, I, I trust, you've had a moment where you've just experienced the love of God for you. The love of God, but you're just on your knees. I can't. It doesn't make sense. But you love me like this. If you've ever had one of those moments where you just, and everything you're struggling with just fades away, I'm loved by God. If you've ever had one of those moments, multiply it by infinity. And you've got heaven, according to Ephesians 2, verse 7. In the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Note, it's the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness. These riches in grace and kindness, this love is immeasurable. Therefore, God says, I need an eternity to show you. That's how big my love is. That's how much time I need. It's going to take me forever to show you this love that was manifested at the cross. And we're just going to be pressing into that love deeper and deeper for all of the ages to come. I think Samuel Rutherford gets it. I read this yesterday. He was a Puritan preacher from the 1600s, wrote letters to people, especially from prison, which is quite interesting to note what he's writing about here from prison. He says this, Oh, for a soul as wide as the utmost circle of the highest heaven that containeth all, that I might contain His love. And yet, I could hold little of it. He's right on. Essentially what he's saying is, I, I see this love that is being talked about in Romans 5. It's being talked about in Ephesians 2. I see it. But if God were to pour that out upon me now, I would explode. Therefore, oh, I could wish that I could have a soul as wide as the diameter of the utmost heaven spreading out into the atmosphere. I need a soul that big if I'm going to contain this love. But... Even if I had a soul that big, I could take, contain only a little of it. That's what he says. And he's right. Which is why Paul says, God is purposing for ages and ages and ages and infinity to come to pour out this immeasurable love upon us. So I pray that, drawing this to a close, I pray that where I began this morning talking about what, how we're broken and, and what the things we are that we're going through and the guilt and the shame or the addictions that we struggle with or are still upset over and, and the fears that we have and the scars, the wounds that, that don't seem to leave us alone and are still there maybe from childhood or wherever they were first given to us. I, I pray that the Gospel had its way with your guys' hearts and with your souls. And that it's meeting you in your pain. And that this love of God, this message, God loves us. God loves you. God loves me. And more than that, He secures that love. And more than that, He has purpose to make it sweeter forever and ever for us. I pray that that reality would find you here in the 21st century and actually affect you. So that you're not worried. Does He love me still? You're not worried. Is He going to provide for me? You're not bitter anymore. If I was forgiven like this, how could I not forgive? 
other people for the wounds. I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. I love you, Pastor. I pray the gospel has had, your way, has it, has had its way with your soul. That's my prayer. And I'll leave us with where Paul pretty much ends the discussion, which is in Romans 5, verse 11. Because there is an effect this knowledge of this truth should have on our soul. He says this in verse 11, More than that, so more than all of this that I've been telling you about God's love and the cross of Christ and how secure it is and all that God purposes to do, more than that, we also rejoice. In God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the upshot of everything God has done for you in Christ is stop worrying, stop doubting, and instead of those things, rejoice. Is what Chris was singing in the beginning. How can I stand here with you and not be moved by you. If you are hearing this stuff and not moved by it, oh, I pray, please cry out to God. Because this stuff ought to make us rejoice. And we ought to fill this place with worship to a God who loves us so infinitely. So I pray, let's just fill this place with our voices. And worship our King for His love, okay? Thank you guys.